Good morning, church. Good morning. We'll, we'll be going through 15 through 46, but I wanted to have more time to preach, and so I asked her to read my scripture. <laughs> it's a joke. It's a joke. It's a joke. Will you join me one more time to pray? Holy Spirit, even now, would you fill me? Even now, would you fill me, Holy Spirit, that I might proclaim your marvelous gospel? That I might do it with dignity, with boldness, by your grace, in Jesus' name. As I study the Gospels, one of the most interesting parts is watching this interaction between Jew, Jesus and the Jewish leaders. And I find these interactions interesting because as I've studied them, church, I've noticed that they, they draw out of me different emotions and feelings. These encounters, church, become sort of like watching a movie as you watch the characters develop within the greater narrative. Now, I'm not recommending, church, that you view the Gospels as, as a movie or as something fictitious, but I do want us to realize that Matthew, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is not just recording an account, church, but he is, he is telling the Gospel story as a means to persuade us to believe. He is giving us, church, intricate details that leads us to the overarching point of this great narrative so that God's word might not only speak to our minds, church, but also to our hearts. And I noticed that as I have been reading the Gospels over these years, that even in my own heart, there has, there has grown a sort of contempt that continued to grow for these Jewish leaders. As many times, church, I found myself trying to imagine the amount of pride and hatred that it took for them to, to continue to go to Jesus over and over again, hoping that they could trip him up and find something that they could condemn him for. They allowed their anger against him to lead them to ultimately desire his death. And not only death, church, but one of the most heinous or one of the most gruesome deaths that one could face during that time. Thinking on these things caused in me all kinds of questions that arose in my, in my mind and my heart. And the, the more God's word dealt with my heart, church, the more it began to draw out things about my heart. Things that led me, church, 
to four observations that helped me to see and apply the beauty of God's gospel to my own heart. As I observed the hearts of these Jewish leaders and Jesus, and so my hope is today that, that by us being reminded of these four observations that they will lead all of us this morning to examine our own heart as we look more deeply at the beauty of the gospel. And so the first observation that I noticed, church, was how sinful the heart of man truly is. The second observation that I noticed was how blinding sin truly is. The third observation was how humble and loving Christ truly is. And the last was how beautiful God's grace truly is. Though, church, these, these observations are not necessarily the main point of the message today, my hope is that thinking about these things as we walk through these encounters between Jesus and these Jewish leaders uh, will, will lead us to seeing our main point more clearly and with more glory. And so as we jump into our text today in Matthew 22, verses 15 through 46, we will walk through three different encounters where the Jewish leaders pose three specific questions. Questions that they pose hoping to trap Jesus in his words as they have serious implications behind them. Implications, church, that will either show Jesus to be a fraud or give further evidence that he is the one who is promised to come. And so as we enter this narrative, church, we will begin by looking at verse 15, where Matthew begins this great discourse, not by going directly to the question, but by first giving us some context clues. Though we're not told about the where and when that this occurs, Matthew does spend time dealing with the who and the why as he wants the, the center of the narrative to be focused on, on, on who we are talking about and the motive behind these questions, church. As he lets us know that in, in this first encounter, there are two groups, two who approach Jesus together. One is the Pharisees and the other, it says, is the Herodians. Now, the Herodians church, we, we don't know much about them. Matthew doesn't go into detail about who they are. But by their title alone, we can guess a few things about them. And one of those things is that, is that they are those who fam follow the family of Herod. Herod was a king of Rome. And so this probably means, as they are called the Herodians Church, that their alliance and commitment is to Rome. And this is rather interesting, church. I don't know if it's interesting to you, but it was to me because the Pharisees are not necessarily known as being Roman sympathizers. But in many ways, they are known for being quite the opposite but yet, they have joined forces with this group as they both seem to have in Jesus. 
a common enemy. You see, there are many who believe that the Messiah's coming will be this sort of militaristic overthrowing of, of Roman rule. There was an expectation that the Messiah would come and lead some sort of revolt, meaning this Messiah would be both a threat to the Herodians and to the Jewish leaders to the Jewish leaders because as Jesus has already indicted them on, they, they have failed to lead Israel to follow God's way. Much like in the, the parable of the master and the tenants. And they, they, they would, they would, there would be reason, uh, they would be the reason for Israel to be under Roman rule in the first place. Therefore, they approach him together. And Matthew lets us know that, that as they approach him, they are not truly desiring, church, an answer to this question. But as verse 15 tells us that they, what they are desiring, church, is to entangle or entrap him in his words. An entrapment that will bring with it a great accusation as it can either accuse him of treason against Rome or treason against the Jewish people. But knowing their deceit, they therefore approach Jesus with cunning words, reminding him of all that is said about him. Teacher, we know you are true. Teacher, we know you teach true things and it doesn't matter who is before you you show no partiality they look to prick his conscience forcing him to tell the truth before asking their question in verse 17 and so then they say to him tell us Jesus then what you think is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? These conniving men pose a question to Jesus in which they are not looking for an answer, church, but a conviction. For they know that there was, there was no compromising church when it came to following the law of Caesar. If one did not comply and was found guilty opposing Roman rule, the only penalty was sure death. But for the Jews who were looking to the Messiah to free them from Roman oppression, a submission to Roman law would be a submission to the Roman uh, oppression against them. And it would discredit Jesus as the Messiah, causing many of his followers to see him as a fraud. Knowing this great conundrum that is before Jesus. He does not shy away from their question, but before answering, he lets them know that he sees through their scheme as it says that he was aware of their great malice. He calls them, church, hypocrites. And he asks them why they continue to test them. 
Jesus lets them know that he sees the sinfulness of their hearts as they continue to try to trap Jesus over and over and over again, displaying the same disposition, much like Pharaoh in Exodus, as he continued to test God over and over again, refusing to believe and submit to him. He, in the same way, church, acted as if he was complying with God by by using flattering words and and saying that he was going to comply with God's ways while refusing to recognize God's authority. Jesus, much like God, exercised great patience, so to speak, with these Jewish leaders as they grew more and more hostile towards him, hardening their hearts, church. But yet even still, knowing this, Jesus does not avoid the question, but rather provides more evidence to who he truly is as he he calls for them in verse 19. He says, bring me a coin. And as they... They bring it to him. He then proceeds to ask them, whose likeness and inscription is on this coin? And when they respond to him by saying Caesar, Jesus simply says, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. In other words, give to Caesar what is his and give to God what is God's. Jesus swiftly, church, puts a dagger in the heart of their plot by by making uh, 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 things evidently clear. First, the fact that they could provide the coin means that they were constantly using the coin, providing the, the, proving the hypocrisy of their question. They are those who are using the coin and now they're acting as if they should not abide by the laws that come with it. I don't know if you remember, but there was a time when, when Jesus was approached about paying taxes and he had no coin, church. But he sent Peter to a fish that he might, he might get the coin out of the fish's mouth and pay the tax. For Jesus is not here to be concerned about matters, church, of taxes. He's not here to try to figure out all the details of complying and not complying with Roman rule. He's not here, church, to to pose some sort of insurrection against Rome, but he has come to claim those things that are God's. For he has not come, church, to create disorder. Oh, no, church, but Jesus has come to restore order. And it doesn't begin with the external laws of the land, church, but Jesus is saying that it begins with the the internal laws of the heart. I believe, church, this is why Jesus asked them whose likeness and inscription is on the coin. For Jesus has come to recover those things that has the likeness and writings of God on them. 
Jesus uses specific language that we see throughout the scriptures, church, that, that points to man and his heart. In fact, this is the very language that the prophet Jeremiah used in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33. As it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and, and brought them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Jesus has not come to get earthly belongings church but he is speaking of something much greater as he is calling for the the return of the hearts of his people those who have been made church in his image and his likeness who he promises to place his writings and his inscriptions on them and he's calling for them to submit themselves to him Jesus used their question to, to point them to a greater kingdom implication and once again leaves them with an invitation to come to him. But it says in verse 22 that when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. Matthew lets us know that though they, they are marveled by the, the, the wisdom of Jesus, there is no confession or repentance. In fact, church, the one thing that Jesus is, is calling them to bring to him, to render to him, is the very thing that they have refused to give him over and over again. As they continue to walk away from the only one, who could truly restore their hearts. In other words, they were, uh, they were aware of the great wisdom of Jesus, but blinded to who was truly before them. Matthew continues his narrative church with, with the second encounter that verse 23 lets us know occurred on the same day. But before jumping into the second question, once again, Matthew helps us to zero in on some context clues, church. Focusing again on the who and the why. He lets us know that this time Jesus is, is approached by the Sadducees. And he lets us know, church, that they are those who say that there is no resurrection. They believe, church, that when the body died, the soul died with it. Acts 23 and 8 also tells us that they did not believe in angels or spirits as well. These were those who only believed in Torah or the, the books of Moses, rejecting the prophets and the writings. Matthew gives us this clue to let us know that, that they, much like the group before, are approaching Jesus, not looking to get an answer, but to trap him as they pose this question about the resurrection 
of which they do not believe. Therefore, their main goal is not to get an answer for Jesus. And so once again, they approach him with this, this cunning heart. In, in, in verse 24, it says that they, they kind of come using the same flattery as the first group. As they say to him, teacher, teacher, please tell us. Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So to the second and, the, and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. They quote Moses. Use, they, they quote Moses' commands giving, given in Deuteronomy 25 and 5. The command that states that if two brothers dwell together and one died, having, a son, uh, having no son to bear his name, that the other brother was, was called to marry his brother's wife and conceive a son with her, that, that that son might carry on the name of the dead brother. Moses said that if one was to deny this, uh, his brother's wife these rights, that, that he would become one of, of dishonor and shame. He said that he should go before the leaders uh, in, in, in Israel and, and they, shall, they shall treat him as one with great dishonor. And the Sadducees used this command of Moses as the basis for their question, believing that it poses to Jesus this, this unanswerable problem. For those who hold to uh, 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 posed a, a problem and, and posed a, a deep uh, a problem for the resurrection. They even take this story, church, and, and not just give the story, but they, they seem to exaggerate it a little bit by saying, what if this happened seven times over? Now, this, this, I'm sure that has probably never, ever happened, but yet these men want to, want to exaggerate this story even greater. They also say that this woman has no son provided. So out of these seven that they have exaggerated about, none of them could provide a son because they know that would be means to say that she then should be with the one who provided the son. And so then they asked Jesus, how would one determine whose wife she would be as all have covenanted with her church? How would... They know the Sadducees in asking this question is not just trying to trip Jesus up, but now they, they are trying to show him how foolish this notion of the resurrection is. Can you imagine being before Jesus and telling him there is no resurrection? <sighs> That's not in my manuscript. Keep going, Hez. For, for she cannot belong to all of them, and, and neither do any of them have a permissible reason for divorce. 
But Jesus, in answering their question, lets them know just how foolish their question truly is. As he responds to them without hesitation, by, by beginning by flat out telling them, you're wrong. In other words, it can be rendered as you have gone astray. Ensuing to them, church, a swift rebuke as he lets them know that they have strayed away from the truths of God. He plainly says to them, neither do you understand the scriptures, let alone the power of God. These men, church, who are experts in the Torah, who are, are experts in the law, have, have scrutinized over every detail of Moses' words, yet they have, they have missed the point of it all. They have prided themselves in their own intellect and because of their self-righteous pursuit have missed the forest for the trees. They have missed the love and the power of a covenant-keeping God who, who will go through all limbs, church, to dwell with his people. These men who have been working to build up their own kingdom on earth have stripped God's word of his great and precious promises of his inaugurated eternal kingdom, cutting out the very glory and purpose of sending the Messiah. They have stripped God's word of all the beauty of the Psalms that, that speak of God's faithfulness towards his people. They have stripped it of all the promises of Isaiah as he speaks of the one coming to restore all things. And they have made God's word out to be an earthly means of do's and don'ts. They have missed the true purpose of God's desire that he might dwell with men and women, that they might be his. And because of that, they have, they have misunderstood the purpose of marriage, church, as our earthly marriages, but a shadow of what is to come in glory, a picture that points to the beauty of the bridegroom who will reign with his bride in his kingdom forever and ever and ever. Jesus says, if you truly understood the scriptures, you would know that there will, there will be no need for earthly marriage in the resurrection because all will be wedded to the son of the king, shining like angels as they sing praises to him and give him glory forever. And he provides for them great peace and rest that they might find their ultimate joy and love in his holy presence. Jesus is saying, church, to these religious leaders, you are wrong. You've missed it. You have misunderstood the transforming power of God who can make all things new. The Jewish leaders, church, are truly the epitome of those described in Romans 1 verses 21 through 23. 
As it says, for although they they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they have become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. And as if that was not enough, Jesus then doubles down on his rebuke by quoting to them Moses. (laughs) He quotes Exodus 3 and 6 as he says to them, Have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Jesus says, For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. (sighs) Ha! Jesus uses church, their own strategy against them as he poses to them a scenario from scripture that they have no answer for. For if there was no resurrection, then why would God himself say that he is the God of these patriarchs who no longer exist? Wouldn't he rather say that he was the God of these men? For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living church. How can he be of God of those who no longer exist? But there will come a day when, when God will, will rise dead men to life, when he will be their God and they will be his And he will be with them as their God. And it says that when they heard these things once again, church, they were astonished. But yet again, these religious leaders are not moved to repentance. And so Matthew continues as he moves to then his last, their last question presented to Jesus by these Jewish leaders. And Matthew does not stray away from his formula church, but once again, he zeroes in on the who and the why. As we are told once again that the the Pharisees now come together once again to conspire against Jesus. And once again, one comes forth to test him. And in the same fashion as the others, we are told that a lawyer approaches Jesus by calling him teacher and posing to him a question. But this time, church, the tactic seems just a little bit different. As, as this, this man poses a question that, that doesn't necessarily pit Jesus in, but leaves multiple answers that could be debated. And so the, this, this lawyer says to Jesus, teacher, which is the greatest command in the law? I think that Matthew points out to us that this man was a lawyer to let us know that he, he, is, he is one who is, is to be considered an expert in the law. And therefore, he is probably looking to debate Jesus. 
hoping to find some sort of fault in Jesus' reasoning of of which law was to be considered more weighty. In fact, church, it was pretty common for these, these different groups who opposed each other to come together and debate these things. Therefore, they once again could be looking for a way to prove Jesus' incompetence and, and solidify him as a fraud. But much like the first two questions, Jesus answers without hesitation. And as he answers, church, he leaves no room for debate. And he says to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He says this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Church, Jesus once again disarms their question, not just by by answering it, church, but by showing the deficiency of their question as he gives them, church, not one commandment, but two. These men and their great arrogance have become those who believe that they are now those who can judge what command is most important to God rather than being those who who serve God with fear and trembling. For to truly love God would be to also love God's people. And Jesus has already proven that their hearts were only fixated on themselves. As he revealed the truth of their hearts in the parable of the tenants. In the parable of the two sons, he proved that they refused to truly give the Lord their hearts. As they refused to accept the call to repent and believe. These religious leaders, church, who were called to be the Levitical priests of their day were to be those who were dedicated to to living out a life of holiness, loving the Lord with all their heart, minds, and soul as they lead the people to a life of holiness. But instead, they have become like those described in the book of Malachi. As he says that that these priests were those who polluted the altar of God and have dishonored his name. Look at what Malachi says uh, in chapter 2 verse 8 through 9. He says, and now, O priest, this command is for you if you will not listen. If you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offspring, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him, uh, uh, 
my covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave it to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of me. True instruction was, was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord's host. But he says, but you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despise and abase before all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. Moses in Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 through 6 gives the command that Jesus seems to quote here. As he says, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and might. And he then says these words uh, after that. He says that I, that I command shall be on your heart. These commandments given in Deuteronomy 6 is the very covenant that Malachi is speaking of. That he said the priests of his day, and now these priests have turned away from. He says it was a covenant church of life and peace. And these Jewish leaders, much like the priests in the days of Malachi, have turned from this covenant as they have not feared the Lord. Moses in Deuteronomy 6 in verse 2 says, I am giving you these commands that you might Fear the Lord. But these men, and not fearing the Lord, have caused strife and oppression for all the people of God. They, in their great sinfulness, have failed to both love the Lord and to love neighbor. And Jesus, in giving these two commands, is once again pointing out their error. He is once again, church, calling them to look at their hearts that they might see how they have strayed from the way of righteousness. And he is calling them to return to it by fearing the Lord and loving him with their whole being. That there might be what, church? Peace and life amongst the people. Church, this is the same call that John the Baptist was calling them to come to as he called them to repent and believe. And this is the very heart of the gospel as it promises that there will be a Messiah who will restore his covenant and, and bring life and peace back to the people of God. And these men have continued over and over and over again to walk away from that very call as they refuse to give their Lord, the Lord their hearts, as they refuse to return back to him and his covenant, and as they refuse to stop looking at themselves while abusing his people. They have cast aside 
both of these commandments, church, in order to follow the sins of their heart. And now that Jesus has answered their three questions and have exposed the hardness of their heart, he then, in the same way as they did, quickly poses three questions to them. Three questions, church, to prove that he is the Messiah himself, as he says in verse 42. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? These religious leaders, church, in order to prove their righteousness, waste no time in answering Jesus' question, but instead gives him the obvious answer as they say that Christ is the son of David. Jesus poses this question, church, that then leads to his next question as he says, how then is it, uh, uh, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then he poses a third question. If David calls him Lord, then how is he his son? Jesus doesn't waste any time and he doesn't need any time to conspire and conjure up and gather with a crowd to pose his questions, church. But instead poses three questions in rapid succession. He knows that the answer that they will give to the first question will make way for the, que for the second question as the second question poses for them a problem which they cannot solve. Jesus quotes Psalm 110, which is a psalm of David in which David speaks of, of the Christ or the, the Messiah who is to come. He says that he is the one that the Lord will send forth. The one who will rule as king with power and a mighty scepter. It says he will make his enemies his footstool and he will have his people as his. And he will dress them, church, in his holy garments. And he will be their true and final priest. And he will lead them to his way of righteousness while executing judgment on all who oppose him. Jesus says, this one that David speaks of, who will rule with power and, and the might of God, who, who David even calls Lord. He says, how can one described in this way be the son of a mere human? How can he be the son of David, one with such authority, who is seated on the throne next to the almighty God himself? How, church? How can he be the son of a, a mere human being? Jesus leaves these men speechless. As one who with, with such stature, who, who, whom David calls Lord, could only be the son of the Lord himself. 
In other words, Jesus is saying to them that this one who, who, who David speaks of and, and who the, all the scriptures point to must be the son of the living God, church. One who has all authority and power in his hand, power to heal, authority to, to cleanse the temple of robbers and thieves. Power to curse the fig tree and, and to cause it to not bear fruit. The one who, who will receive the praises of the people, church, with gladness and joy. Who gives the criteria for entering into the kingdom of God and is also the gate that they must enter through. The one who will accept all those who repent and believe the bad and the good, prostitutes and tax collectors. The one who the father sends to the tenants, who is the stone that the builders reject, who will become the chief cornerstone, who is the heir of the kingdom of God as his father sits beside him on his throne, preparing for his son a great wedding feast, inviting all to come that they might join him, church, not only as his guest, but as his, his precious bride, inviting them into his holy presence. Well, he will be theirs, and they will be his, and, and, and they will enjoy each other forever in holy matrimony through a covenant church of life and peace that will be eternal as he raises them from death and sin through the mighty power of his word and spirit that they might have everlasting life abundantly through his perfect holy love that his holy father might be pleased as he looks down on these people and see them through the perfect righteousness and spill blood of his son who will give his life for them that they might be redeemed and be sent throughout the earth, church, that they might proclaim to all the glory of the Son of the living God. Who will wipe away every tear. Who will cleanse every sin. And make them as white as snow. I don't know about you, church, but as I look at the hearts of these religious leaders and the glorious heart of my God, Jesus Christ, I see my heart, I see my sinfulness. I see my brokenness, church, and how blinding for me my sin was. But even more so, church, I see the, the humility and the love of the Son of God, who because of his great love and mercy through the beauty of his holy grace, have opened my eyes and have, have given me faith to see and, and believe had it not been for the goodness and grace of the Lord I would have been just like these religious leaders church dead in my sins 
left to the hardness of my heart and destined to be cast out of his kingdom into utter darkness. But God, because of his loving kindness and richness and mercy, chose to save my miserable soul that he might give me new life, that I might be reborn again. I'm sure that it is some of you who have come in this morning questioning God. I pray for you this morning that he might do the same thing for you that he did for me. That he might open to you the beauty of his word and his glory and his gospel. That you might receive it. That you might repent and believe and receive new life. I pray that with everything in me this morning, church. Would you pray with me?